So welcome to episode 29 of Level Up, 60 minutes of live Q&A, where your questions and votes really do drive the show. The Slido link in the chat will allow you to vote up the questions that you'd most like answered and, of course, to add your own. So please do head on over there. In the first half, we're going to be talking about online learning, what you love about it, and of course, what you don't like quite so much. And you can ask us pretty much anything that you would like around that theme in either the teaching side or the learning side of that equation. In the second half, we're going to focus on how courseware itself needs to change to meet the needs of the modern online learner. So let's jump straight in and meet our panel all of whom are experienced practitioners in the world of online learning. We're delighted to welcome Melanie Franklin to the panel today. She's a founder, author, a consultant and a coach in the disciplines of change in an agile environment. She works around the world affecting change programs across the public and the private sector. So welcome, Melanie. Great to see you. Thank you. Um, I have a particular interest in this because as well as being the chief examiner for APMG's uh, Agile Change Agent course, I'm launching in 2022 um, an entire sort of product range um, for my larger corporate clients that's all going to be online um, on a platform. So I'm spending a lot of my time redesigning work so that it is far more impactful on, on these sort of platforms. Okay, thank you very much indeed. We'll look forward to picking your brains a little bit as we go through um, the event itself. Um, uh, Sabajit, welcome back. Sabajit Bose is the owner and the MD of uh, Training and Consultancy Services. He specialises more on the cyber side of teaching and learning. He's a regular contributor now to Level Up and is based in um, Singapore. One of, I think as a country, probably one of the earliest adopters of nationwide broadband um, in the late 1990s, if I remember rightly. So welcome back, Sabajit. Great to see you. Thank you very much, Nick, and uh, good to see all the panelists here. And uh, well, as I have spoken earlier, um, as I do my training in cybersecurity, cloud security, uh, DevOps, and other things. Now, today we know that online courses are the only way to reach face-to-face. Are even in Singapore not happening, and because thanks to the new variant, it may not happen very soon. So what we are doing, we are converting all these courses into online synchronous. At this very moment, I'm working on a specific course on cyber security, specifically with cloud. And we are doing it on a platform of LMS. Uh, we are yet to touch with uh, LSR, but with LMS and doing synchronous, asynchronous together. And uh, we are bringing it out again early. Um, uh, New Year in January sometime uh, because Chinese New Year is coming and we are doing a pilot in December in one of the universities here. So what I feel that, yeah, this is the only way to go and we have to adopt and adapt. Great. Okay. Thank you very much indeed, um, Sabajit. Appreciate it. Martin. Martin Kinch is a director at Training Bite Size, and he spent his career developing successful accredited training and certification projects, um, focusing mostly, I would say, in the project and program management kind of genre, if you yeah. like. And Training Bite Size themselves have been first to market into a wide variety of online learning interventions. Welcome, Martin. Great to see you back again. Thanks, Nick, and uh, thanks for the invitation to this. Uh, forum as well. So, 
Uh, I've been developing Northrin um, online training for about 20 years now. So I can share my top tips or the top tips for creating engaging online learning and equally what to avoid, hopefully, when you're doing it. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. We'll rely on that. Um, completing the panel um, today is Ron Lehman. He's the founder and owner of the Highway of Change. He's making a second appearance for us on Level Up and really delighted to welcome him back um, as he moved 100%, I think, of his consultancy business into an online model some time ago, Ron. So welcome back. Great to see you. You actually took the words right out of my mouth as a meatloaf sang. Um, <laughs> yes, about three years ago, I hung up my consultancy boots because I got sort of a little bit fed up of getting on and off aeroplanes and um, you know getting to airports early and stuff like that. So um, I now focus just on two areas, which is uh, change management training and change management trusted advice, but they are completely online. So. That's what I do. Thank you very much indeed. Now, um, if you're sitting watching this and you feel that you could answer some of the questions, then please just volunteer in the chat and one of the team will be in touch with you uh, to onboard you and welcome you to uh, one of the future panels. Um, completing our group today is uh, Suchitra. She's um, standing in as question master uh, for this particular event and she's joining us from Bangalore in India. So, um, Suchitra, welcome and may we have the first question, please. Sure. Hi, everyone. We have a question from Jeffrey in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Virtual course feels very broadcast based. What are the best methods of introducing engagement to a class? Okay, uh, Ron and then Sabajit. Uh, yeah, virtual courses do feel often, and I've done a few, uh, broadcast based, but I think it's more about the how the individual delivers what they're delivering. It's more about tone of voice it's more about uh, movement and so forth so you know all these things help to actually engage the audience because if you do just deliver in a monotone fashion it becomes very boring and people switch off yeah it's a really good point that you make um Sabajit? yeah uh, what i would say yeah <clears throat> absolutely agree with ron that now, what I normally do is I try to have a profile of the learners or the listeners because it differs from a young person who is just out of the uni and then someone in a mid-career. Mm -hmm. So the, the objectives differ. So I try to uh, focus and pitch to specific group of people and try to understand their need I even have trained for elderly people. You know, we have some silver um, age computing knowledge um, done by the government. And so there it is completely different than what I do for anyone else. So first thing is you have to engage. And of course, you have to understand their need and deliver bit size based on that. Okay, thank you very much, Sabajit. Uh, Martin, your thoughts? Um, engagement's the key with this, is keeping people interested. If it's virtual, uh, you're delivering it live and you want things like breakout rooms, quite, quite a few breakout rooms, quizzes, polls to keep the learner interaction going because it can get quite tedious to listen to a screen. So as much engagement as you can build in. If it's recorded, try and create something that has breaks. So 
every two or three screens or sessions, step back, create questions that reflect the previous content, and use very different question styles to try and keep it engaged as possible. That's the secret to good virtual training. Absolutely right. And um, that word engagement will come up a lot, I think, um, over the course of the session today, how to create it and then how to sustain it, you know, throughout the learning experience. If people are not engaged, then they're unlikely, you know, to be uh, truly learning. They might just be passively, you know, uh, receiving, if you like, the content rather than actually internalising it and doing something with it. Thank you very much, indeed. Great question uh, to kick us off with. Uh, Suchitra, let's move on, please. Susan from Atlanta asks, how do you best deal with students that are lagging behind in an online learning environment? Okay, so um, how to differentiate that learning. Martin, what are your thoughts? This happens quite a lot. You'll, you'll get a lot of people at different learner styles. You've got the A learner style that's very fast, B somewhere in the middle, and people just finding the time to get in. And some people don't understand it so easy. So again, that, that ability to absorb the information, what you need are checkpoints. So during the course, a third of the way through, you'll have a checkpoint with a, a quiz which reflects back the information you've been through. That quiz needs to sort of have a minimum pass rate. That pass rate will tell you the knowledge that the person's taken on board. And what we do is in cohorts where the pass rates on the question points are lower, we'll separate those out and we deal with them either on a one-to-one -one or a workshop basis. That's just life. It happens, but it's handling those so they don't lag behind because the further you get along in the course, the harder it is to catch up. I hope that helps. Yeah, it certainly does. Thank you. I might come back to that thought in a moment. Um, Sabjit, how do you go about this? Yeah, right. So first of all, I when I start, I profile the trainees. I normally would start with the opening quiz and trying to get some initial uh, understanding of how much they know and how much they can grasp by those questions. And then, of course, as I go, so what I have to do is understand there will be always some people who are lagging. So try to identify them and then try to address their needs on an offline. Face-to-face, uh, -face it is much easier, but online and uh, asynchronous, in that case, it is not so easy to do. And especially if at a class has a contrast, like some are very fast learners, some are slow learners. So <clears throat> there has to be uh, some content segregation, which uh, we are trying to build in this new thing that we are trying to do. So making sure that people learn in different ways. So some offline when people learn some of the concepts at their own uh, you know, pace so they can feel okay. more comfortable and then come back and then we reinstate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that let's kind of separate these two scenarios because question doesn't state whether the, you know, teaching and learning is happening all together at the same time in, in uh, as a synchronous course um, or if it's happening, happening at different times. So I would say that if you're teaching a live event, okay, then prepare in the way in which you would do for a classroom environment. You know, first of all, use all of those different questioning techniques that you have available to you. Um, have your reinforcement material ready so that you can, you know, assist people in that. 
and be prepared, you know, during some of the labs and exercises that you're running, you know, for the, uh, the fast learners to have differentiated content that you can run in a breakout room online, you know, for those who just need that little bit more, you know, help and encouragement to get the concepts. Once the concepts are there, then, you know, the execution can kind of follow and the interpretation can follow. On the recorded versions, we'll come back to that a little bit later with some thoughts on how you might be able to engineer that into the courseware as well. Very good. Thank you very much, Suchitra. Let's move on. We'll take the next question, please. There's a question from Ron Lehman, our panelist. How should you react when it is clear that the person you are delivering, talking to, is not listening or paying attention? Okay, uh, Melanie? I think the key thing here, if you look at it from a neuroscientific point of view, is that um, the best thing we can do is to ask questions. Um, it's no point telling somebody um, if you're getting frustrated that they're not really listening, they're not really engaged. And you can tell that they are playing with their phone um, or they're making, you know, that they're, they're just not really into what you're saying. Um, it's about asking questions about their own interpretation. Um, what do they think they would use the information for? What situations are they currently experiencing so they can put it into context? I think there's something there about how do we engage people by asking questions and getting them to do some of the thinking. Um, it's not a situation where you can just sort of point out that somebody's not listening and thinking that that will make the difference. Absolutely right. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Sabajit, how do you manage this? <clears throat> oh, well, I train a lot of company-sponsored courses and their people come because their bosses have asked to and they have no intention to learn, not always, but Many times I have students who have been who has been playing guitar as I am teaching. Some are always on phone call. So this thing happens. So um, one is, yeah, as Melanie said, ask questions. Suddenly ask someone some question to say, hey, uh, what is this thing? Where are we? You know, or something and then get back asking some other people and then get back to them. So you don't make them feel that they are targeted. But yeah, trying to get their thing in uh, attention back and also stating some house rules to say that, hey, this is this is what we will expect to do if not. And then maybe sometimes reinstate that because people forget. And uh, so so we have to do such techniques where we can get what we are, you know, you are looking for but yet not really picking on the person because that is the worst thing to do if you directly ask someone and tell that you are not listening yeah indeed it's and, it's, and the it's our role totally all of the time mm, yeah i agree i think it's our role all of the time to facilitate the learning you know and it's it's the responsibility of the learner to participate in that and you know if there are other things going on you know in their work life or in their private life that means that they cannot do that then there's a limit point where you know you need to consider are they disrupting the whole group or is it unacceptable you know kind of behavior just as you would do in a face-to-face -face classroom environment so very good uh, interesting question thank you uh, ron have you got anything to add to that from from your perspective uh, i I was just going to say this is based on personal experience, so I was interested in what the panel was going to say. So the questioning, yes, it's I did. I've tried that. It's worked sometimes. Other times it hasn't. Um, one of the things I have done and I have used before is just complete silence. So if I can see somebody's actually not um, you know, engaging, 
I just keep quiet. And then what you find is after a few seconds, the silence breaks the breaks the breaks the thing up. Um, so okay. I keep on trying different things. But questioning, yes, definitely. All right. Okay. Very good. Um, Martin, finish us off on this. Yes. If you're if you're doing this, you you, you guys, the, the comments back from the, the team are really really good. But sometimes you're fine. If you're in an organisation, you might be delivering the training remotely. You have no access to the students, but you can tell because you've got checkpoints, you can tell they're not engaging. It's really important to have assistance capture that because you need to report that back up the chain so you can identify people. So rather than saying only 60% of the people finish the course, you can identify at previous points and then suggest further up in reporting those people that perhaps not spend the time on it. And that takes that away for to be dealt with by the department head. That's when it's truly remote, but you need some way to, to manage that be able to you know manage and measure it i agree martin because you know sometimes as well it's not the individual that what you're seeing witnessing what we're witnessing is a symptom and the symptom actually comes from you know others perhaps their team leader or their manager is not you know allowing them you know the space and the time to be able to participate fully in the learning activity so really good advice there from a training delivery point of view and helping team leaders and line managers and so on to join in that learning journey very good thank you so Chitra, let's move on question from rebecca in new orleans usa as a teacher i'm finding delivering virtual classes more challenging than in-person classes they seem to demand more of my time and are quite frustrating does the panel have any tips on how to make this easier? Melanie? Um, I think if we were in the classroom physically, um, we would be asking our groups to get on with an activity. Um, and we're at the front of the class and we might be looking up some material for the next piece. Um, we might be dealing with some administration of our own work. If we just go back to what it felt like when we were physically in the room, um, and compare that with the, the new situation, which is we're sat in front of a camera usually. And um, we might have a stand-up desk, um, but usually we're sat in front of the camera and we've, we've got our groups. I think what I'm trying to do is to pace myself in terms of the entire delivery. So if my groups are in breakout rooms, um, I will sort of get myself organised for the next piece. Um, I will give myself a break away from the screen. I know that if they're in a breakout room for 10 minutes, I might turn to my paperwork and give my eyes a break from looking at the camera. I'll turn off my own camera because I don't want to see myself because that also can be very tiring on the brain. Um, so I think it's just going back to what we would have done if we were in the classroom and it wouldn't have been staring at a screen the whole time. And I'm sure that's part of it. Um, I think it's also that it's as a trainer, it's not just using the breaks of coffee break and lunch break, but it's also using those times when people are in the breakout rooms um, to actually give ourselves an opportunity to do something else for a moment. Um, I've also found that I do use video content, um, not be because I find that sometimes if I can carefully find a video that can make the same points I would, it gives everybody a break, not just me. It gives everybody a break from hearing as if it were my opinion. Um, so I regularly, um, every couple of weeks, I will spend quite a lot of time um, looking at TED Talks, for example, to find a few minutes out of a TED Talk that might make a point 
um, for some of my courseware that I can use, um, that other people will see a different voice um, that will give reflective learners something to reflect on in that others are saying the same thing. But it also gives me a chance to be the listener rather than the presenter for a moment. And again, it's those sorts of moments that I think break up the, the whole training delivery. Some really powerful ideas there to you know be able to you know relieve that you know kind of pressure because I think we do put ourselves under a, a great deal of pressure. And um, Sabajit, you're always cool as a cucumber. How do you how do you manage this when you've got lots of people demanding attention all at the same time? Yeah, for Rebecca, I would say um, the approach of teaching in a virtual class has to be very different from a face-to-face -face class. In a face-to-face -face class, we are there physically, you can see and control. But in a virtual class, you are away. You do not have a direct control over the people. So what you have to do is proactively have activities planned and talk less. Um, I would say, I would, I, because when you say challenging, I would expect that you are doing most of the talking and the other side, they're listening. Now, if I would put myself in the shoes of your learners, I may be feeling very bored of sitting in front of a camera for hours together, perhaps. I don't know. I'm just assuming. And then listening to you, that can be. Even with all your charms and all your techniques can also be not very encouraging from my side. So having short sessions of lecture, and more breakout room activities, quizzes, watching videos and things. So that helps a lot. Okay, thank you very much. Um, very good. Uh, Ron and then Martin. Um, to be honest, um, I obviously I don't have experience as a teacher in a classroom as such, although I've done you know, various um, various. Um, um, events etc but um, I actually don't find that my delivery virtually demands more time than it would if I was doing it in front of a group of people uh, I'm not sure why that is <laughs> if you want me to delve deeper I, I, I don't I don't really know but I, I, I kind of find it's not that much different so um, okay. I mean you know I don't have any tips on how to make it different because I don't find it Okay, thank you. Uh, Martin? We started, um, when we started doing virtual courses, we took um, a bunch of trainers we worked with that had never done it before. And I've got to be honest with you, the first couple were probably quite painful because we sort of started to understand how to do it and make it. The two things, as I say to you, to take away are engagement. It's engagement, engagement, engagement. And just keep experiment. Do not be afraid to experiment, and you will find things that work for you. So engage, experiment, engage, experiment, and you will find the right balance. I hope that helps. Yeah, I'm sure that it uh, that that it does. The um, the the thing that I would say is that you forget how terrifying it was the very first time you led a face to face class on your own. Um, because after a while, you kind of get really comfortable with that and you know the tools and the techniques around classroom mm. management and to differentiate, you know, the levels for different groups within the classroom itself, um, how to use, you know, overhead and directive questioning techniques and so on. Now, a lot of it feels overwhelming at first because it's coming through, you, you know, the single medium 
of uh, working remotely and having a little interface, you need to be able to go through whether it's Zoom or Teams or whatever teaching platform you're actually using, you know. Um, But after a while, you can kind of set some expectations up front as you would do face-to-face and and then it becomes a little bit more comfortable um, over time. And being prepared and engaging people, as Martin said and the other panellists have mentioned, absolutely the key to success and then you won't feel quite so um, sort of stressed so good luck with all of that Rebecca I hope that um, helps out so Chitra we'll take one more question and then we'll move on to the focus topic question from Nick in Wokingham UK what tips does the panel have for managing hybrid classrooms as some people are in person and some join remotely okay Martin please We'll have, you'll have some interesting tips. There's some really good people on the panel who've done this. We've done it, and the model is quite common now. We think the model moving forward will be people dialing in and people in the classroom. So we've come up with multi-TV, multi-camera things. We think it's really important that the people that are dialing in can see the people in the classroom by their face. So they've got a forward-facing camera. It's really important they can see the trainer, so you have a back-facing camera. Um, you have to have microphones so the virtual people are in the classroom they can hear the questions being discussed and speakers so they can talk and be heard within a group so it's really down to technology but we've got it working and it works really well and we're very happy with it so yeah it's just that balance of technology to make it work i hope that helps great question nick by the way Okay, thank you, Martin. Was um, it's kind of a, an area of super interest for so many people at the moment. Um, Melanie, how what are your thoughts on this? How how would you make it work? Well, I'm at the other end of the scale where I've seen it as a car crash. Um, it, and I think Martin's right. It is um, the technology is the issue um, because otherwise there is a disparity. And I think the biggest disparity is that if you have some people in the same room together they will naturally form bonds they will naturally talk and chat with each other you've got to give people who are dialing in parity um i think martin's at cutting edge really are coming up with an answer to be fair um because i think very few organizations have done that or given it any consideration martin i just don't think they're there yet um it's going to be with us throughout 2022 2023 this pandemic's not over yet Um, And also when it is, the hybrid working will still be with us. So I think we just have to really invest in this. I like Martin's answers, um, but I think that many organisations don't have them yet. And therefore, that is going to harm um, any online learning experience if we're not careful. I, th- I think I think you're both absolutely right and proper to be able to um, illustrate the gulf that is out there right now. What I think is an early indicator. So there's a couple of parts to this. The first one is is that you're already seeing some organisations saying um, hybrid meetings, even just online internal hybrid meetings, are a challenge, and so therefore they've got people going into the office, and for certain meetings, everybody is then joining via zoom from their desk you know and that's quite an admission that says they haven't figured out how to do a hybrid meeting never mind hybrid learning so um the second part on the uh, technology side is um martin i think that's really forward looking you know to think about that experience for each of the learners both in the classroom and also those who are joining remotely um i do think there's some technology which is really going to help um, it's not easy setting up audio 
in the way that you described. That needs a lot of hard work to get it right so that the people in the classroom can hear the remote contribution without getting that awful, you know, clipping and, you know, audio sort of um, auto muting going on from from different parts of the uh, audio chain. And the other thing that I would say is that there's a lot of work going on at the moment into something called spatial audio that that may be of interest to the panel. So if you um, uh, go online and watch some of uh, the Apple um, keynotes around different products or, or just research spatial audio, I think this could be hugely helpful in a hybrid classroom because you, you can actually have remote uh, people and uh, physically present people appearing in the audio stream in the position that you lay it out in the classroom. So that could be super useful for you as well, just to consider that. All right, well, look, very good. Thank you very much, panel. Some technology there and some good practice to be able to share. Let's change gear now, and I'll invite Melanie to join me for the focus topic. For those of you who are in Slido, just click on the little focus topic tab, and then you can add your questions for Melanie and the rest of the panel there. Now, it's a real skill to be able to take a method or a, um, a framework and break it down into a syllabus that delivers learning objectives in a manner that both brings the subject to life and also is engaging for the learner, creating courseware um, that really does drive engagement in the learning process and that's built upon sound pedagogical principles requires both creativity and real discipline. So, Melanie, as your business has, has grown and it has done and fantastically in parallel with the constraint of the pandemic, how's your course development and delivery changed to make the most of teaching and learning online? I think the, I've done over 400 events since the pandemic started. Um, and I think I found that the most important thing is that people are a little bit like the teacher who asked a question about um, how tiring it was on Zoom. Um, people are looking for real answers, practical um, solutions. Um, they're not looking for delivery. As soon as you start to sort of get into, I'm going to tell you some things um, without any opportunity to practically apply it, I think you've got problems. People are overwhelmed by back-to-back meetings. So I think I've had people come to me and who are very, very hesitant about going on any kind of online learning because they've had enough of online meetings. Um, and we have to set ourselves up as this is a curated experience where we look after you and we empathize with the experience you're having. Um, and we're going to make it interactive. We're going to make it practical. We're going to give you an opportunity to do things in small bite sizes where you can actually use it. You can come back and tell us how you've used it, how you've applied it to your own work, share those stories with people. So mm. It's all about you said at the start, it was all about engagement. It is. It's engagement is interactivity. But the probably the thing that I'm seeing most is, and the, the demand for most, is practical application. That's cutting through everything. And to be honest, as we go back more into part classroom, part virtual, um, that demand hasn't changed either. Practical application, because I think people are just so overwhelmed and so busy with their, the amount of, of pressures on them already. Yeah, I'll come back to that fatigue in in a few moments. But before we kind of mm -hmm. go into that a little bit further, what would you say are the priorities that learners have when they're joining, you know, your online events? Um, I think the first thing is there's nerves to start with. 
Um, they're a little bit nervous about technology, perhaps they are nervous about um, are they going to get the networking? Are they going to get the relationship building that they would have got in the classroom? And I think that is something, again, it's that empathetic experience. So making sure that I do create that really powerful um, group um, feeling that we're all in this together. Um, so I think there's, we have to set aside time for socialization. Um, and I think too often um, meetings don't allow for that. Um, it is of concern because, of course, people want to get on with the material as well. So you have to strike a balance. But socialization and, and building a team as soon as possible, I think, is probably the, the first trick to making people feel comfortable. I think there's something else, though, that I've noticed, which is around um, getting people in the right headspace for this. There's something about personal responsibility that I've really noticed. Um, particularly as I was doing some face-to-face, -face, physical face-to-face -face work um, a few weeks ago, um, and then the rest of the time it's been online, is the advantages of being online is that I am not responsible for people's seating arrangements, uh, whether the room is too hot or too cold, um, or whether or not they've, you know, sorting out whether they've got their stationery. Um, I don't miss any of that. But the flip side of it is that I think we have to sort of get people into the right space and go, have you got everything that you need around you? Are you ready for this? Um, have you put your phone away? Um, have you put your out of office on? You know, there are some things I think that we can help people to really just focus for a moment and go, yeah, I'm in a classroom now. Because they have lost that. I open the door, they walk in, they see other people, they put their bags down and they start chatting with people. So if you go back to that, um, you wouldn't have had people just standing there, would you, with their phone, ignoring everybody else and just doing their emails. You wouldn't do that in the classroom. So how do we create that kind of experience where perhaps we have to be a bit more explicit about those social norms and those social expectations and recognize yeah, it is a social event. It's social learning. I absolutely agree. And, you know, and in the role of the facilitator, the leader of the learning, um, it's important that we set that environment up, you know, from the outset and set those expectations and then also manage them kind of mm -hmm. as we go. Um, I, I wanted to return to the Zoom fatigue thing. I think there are you know, two principal things that you can do straight away to reduce that impact um, on people. Firstly, um, improve your audio. Um, use uh, a proper microphone. It makes an enormous difference for people listening to you through the day if you are delivering high quality audio to them uh, throughout the course delivery. So that would be my plea as somebody that's sat in on a lot of, uh, you know, kind of uh, short events over the last few years is generally the audio quality is absolutely diabolical and there's no excuse for it anymore. It's not the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, you, you know, we, we are around about halfway through. So it's plenty of time now to go and talk to Father Christmas or whoever is going to gift you and get yourself a decent audio setup. So that was the first thing. The second thing is just banish all of those virtual backgrounds. Get rid of them. Um, they don't help. Uh, what they cause is um, a, a lot of work for your brain as they try to figure out where has the instructor's ears disappeared to as you kind of lean backwards and forwards and they restrict your movement hugely. So I would say do those two things and you'll help your learners tremendously. 
it's really simple things that we can all do. All right, let's move on a little bit. Um, so let's talk now about authoring and designing the courseware, if you like, from the ground up. So we're now thinking about authoring content for delivery online. What are the implications do you, do you feel for that kind of architecture, if you like, of the courseware design and development? Well, I think the first thing is, um, if you go on, instead of being the trainer for a moment, if you're going into various Zoom meetings, and I'm often in the boardroom of other organisations, and I'm sitting in a board meeting and I'm watching other people's presentations, and the real learning point for me has been um, that actually you need to up the um, the um, the size of font, um, the size of diagrams, because often we're peering down a small screen and we're sort of looking at it. And what's that? Because um, when people share their screens, of course, it's not that great. And often a lot of people who are sharing their screens aren't actually sharing it on presentation mode. So there is something in there about, first of all, size and scale. The second thing, very practically, but you have to be very clear about the story you're telling. What's the flow? What's the order of it? And I think sometimes you have to explicitly share that so that people can follow along with you. And I have found that um, animation and transition um, is really important so that you don't have something all on the slide at once, that you build things up, even if it's a bullet point list. Just building it up is really important because, of course, if you were on a flip chart, that's what you would have done anyway. You would have written a point. You would have turned to the group. You would have had a discussion about it. So it is about leading people through, I think, and for designing the courseware. And in fact, that's what exactly what I'm doing this morning. Um, I am not only am I designing the running order, which I must have changed quite a few times already today. But it's also I'm making the links between. All right, I'm saying this point, but about five points later, it connects to another point. And actually, I'm draw drawing a diagram here, which shows people how. I'm saying this, and when I get to the next point, I'll say, and obviously an input is something we've talked about earlier. Just being really explicit, again, about the journey and how everything fits together. I think what you have to think of when you're designing this in this environment now is that it's a jigsaw puzzle, and we're putting up each of the pieces, but everybody at home doesn't have the picture on the box. So you're having to think about giving each person a picture a little piece, but put it into the context of that bigger picture. Just even though they haven't got the bigger picture, you're going to have to give them that. And that, I think, is the real challenge. Thank you very much indeed. So last question now. Um, so we've produced the courseware and we've either you know, put it into a method that people can learn on their own, at their own pace, or we're delivering it you know, kind of um, uh, live, if you like, over the internet. And following up from that then afterwards, how effective in your experience can offering online mentoring and coaching be in helping people to apply what they've learned and, and implement, you know, some of the frameworks or the behavioural changes or the, you know, new ways of working that, that you've worked on together? I think it's essential that you have something. Um, I don't always do one-to-one -one coaching or mentoring straight after. It might be a group session. Um, but the key thing in terms of learning is that it's about somebody expressing how they have learned it and how they have used it, which is how they make sense of it. So if you don't give them that opportunity to come back, if they've been studying for five hours over a period of weeks 
And then you don't give them the opportunity to share not only with you, but also with other people and hear how other people have been using it. Then you've missed out on a massive part of the experience of learning because actually I'm, I'm not sure it is learning. I think it's reading. They've been reading up until that point. Um, learning is an active process. Learning is a social process. And if you don't give people the opportunity to talk it through um, and to ask questions, um, then you're missing out. But that said, Absolutely. I think blended learning rather than one-to-one -one coaching. Um, the reason to have one-to-one -one coaching, which is going to be very much more expensive in terms of time and energy, is because they've got a unique situation that actually just one-to-one -one between us would be um, a good reason to do that. If it's very confidential, if it's about restructuring their organization, then I'll do it. But the rest of the time, I would much rather they were in a group so that the learning isn't just from me, it's from everybody else as well. He's actually been on a similar journey, but whatever else happens, however online the experience is, and there were some questions earlier on in this session um, that I don't think we got to about it not being a great experience. But I think if you're learning alone, make sure that you've got an option to how can I keep in touch with that person who was giving me the information. So there is there's an opportunity for two way. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Melanie. Uh, it's been really interesting and uh, appreciate, you know, you giving us a bit of a deeper dive uh, into the art of authoring courseware for an online environment. Let's move back then to the panel, Sachitra. I can see we've got quite a lot of questions um, around this topic. So let's go with the first question, please. Question from Jeffrey in Amsterdam, Netherlands. I have bought a number of e-learning classes over the years, and most of them were very boring, making it hard to work through the content. Now that I'm developing my own e-learning courses, can the panel recommend some techniques to make e-learning more interesting? Okay, well, I think one of them is awareness, so well done, Jeffrey, for that. Sabaji at first, and then Martin. Hi. Um, so, Jeffrey, what you need to do, as, as we talked earlier, the key to an e-learning is engaging the person or the people to whom you're delivering. So to do that, you must first know a little bit about themselves and what they are actually wanting to learn. You must have a clear learning objective defined <laughs> and um, have that built into the course. Then use different techniques of engaging them, not just only lecture, use pictures, use uh, small clips, videos, use any kind of small, uh, you know, um, so some kind of a graphics, things that helps, plus have some, some of those things where breakout rooms can happen, where you people can interact, and you mostly have to take the point of how they can get the learning through their work and give them the opportunity to do so. Now, in one right. of my trainings, when I started, I was talking too much and things were not happening. So I changed gear and I did experiment and it worked out. I created a, a few activities where people have to not just see and learn, but in a scenario created at the work, they will have to see how they can apply it. And when they do that, the learning happens. You know, then at the end of the class, when I say, how was your learning? Did you 
achieve your learning objective then they say oh yeah now i can bring it back to my work so passing the certification or some exam is not a big deal but how can i use it at work so that is okay, the thing people you. are looking at and we have to give them the chance thank you very much uh, briefly martin i feel very brief on this because uh, a lot of questions a good question jeffrey so very quickly when you pick your subject ensure the demand is what you want it's not just your subject there's a demand for it try and create a syllabus so you have a stating point if you don't have a syllabus then it's very difficult to create a structure storyboard that what does it look like what do the screens look like how's the structure and flow good and within that build in the engagement create the scripts have the engagement as part of that um, develop the, the software you want keep to the subject two things that happen a lot in courses are perfectionist loop where you just keep going on and on and on at it trying to make it better and better there comes a point where it's fine get it out there have a change log record things in the change log so don't get in the perfectionist loop and don't get in the user feedback loop feedback loop which is one where people keep saying you have this you have that so yeah syllabus storyboard design keep it simple and get it out there that's really really top advice martin thank you very much indeed um Sushitra, let's press on Question from Jan Van Delsen. Online learning is great for scaling up, consistency of your message and personalization. Do you feel that trainers use the available adaptive technology enough to deliver training? Uh, personally, I would say no. Um, in general terms, uh, I, I would really doubt that most trainers are truly embracing adaptive technologies. Um, Melanie, your thoughts? I like what you said earlier on about we're probably about halfway through the pandemic um, because I do think that there was the immediate knee-jerk reaction to moving to online platforms like Zoom. Um, my clients use Zoom, they use Teams, they use Google Hangouts. Um, but actually using more sophisticated technology that's more deliberately designed for collaboration and online learning um, is something that um, perhaps as trainers we're not investing in enough yet. Um, I think I'm certainly I've made that that decision and that move. Um, I, it, it, I mean, what was really important was seeing that Zoom was a, it was a, a good place to be um, for certain things, but not for everything. Um, but it does require it means I have to go back to school. It means I have to go back and learn something that I hadn't learned before. And it's a recognition, perhaps, as with any change um, that we have to baseline um, that the world's moved on. And that my old skills, which worked very, very well in the classroom, um, need to be tuned up. So it requires to be being humble, basically, and not thinking that um, just because I used to be able to do something in this new world, it translates brilliantly. Um, that actually um, we need to be far more, I think, technologically um, engaged than we are. I mean, somebody else asked a question about how do you handle the technical problems of your learners? Um, I think we have to be aware of what the technical issues are. I think we have to be aware of what the experience of the learning's like. We have to be um, thinking all the time about the better experience we can give. But I think it starts with that piece which says, you know what, the world's changed. We've actually got a new baseline. We've got new customer expectations and really asking yourself the question, if you're a trainer, am I meeting those? And if not, be prepared to invest in some more learning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Ron? Yeah, um, throughout my <laughs> career, I've always tried to um, go with KISS, keep it simple. Um, and 
I use a very simple process. I've just got a couple of ear buttons, and I use either Zoom, I use either WebEx or um, Teams or whatever the client wants to use. Okay, and I use my laptop. Um, what's it called? You can see me through camera. <laughs> Sorry. Camera. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's it. Breakout rooms, stuff like that. I try and keep away from because what I think it, it does is just it complicates the learning process. And what you're trying to do, the word engagement has been used many times. You're trying to engage with people. So if you're trying to fiddle around with new technology that you may not be completely happy with, you're detracting from what you're trying to deliver. And for me, I want to deliver something that's simple, practical, understandable. Yeah? So that's my view. Understand. And I think you're right to highlight that, you know, a big element of this is about understanding and then trying things out, um, being iterative to Martin's point, getting it out there and seeing what happens with it and so on. You know, getting that um, feedback and considering whether or not, you know, things then need to adapt and change. Um, Martin, your thoughts and then we'll move on. Very, very quickly, um, what, what we find is actually if we step back, if this is the technology loop, get my hands on the screen, if this is the bad bit and this is the great bit, most organisations that have delivery, Melanie bit on this, are in the middle bit. So there is an awful lot of technology out there, but in the end you have to adapt to your learners. Um, you have to adapt to technology, the organisation, the public sector, the government. You know, where they are in technology is different from us, so it is also as much about adapted technology we can use rather than that we'd love to use yeah absolutely i think one last point on this is that there is actually as well i'm not quite sure if the questioner meant this but there is actually an adaptive teaching technique which argues that um, if you have a short gap of two or three days in between learning interventions it really does help reinforce behavioural change. So that's something to consider as well, just in terms of the design and development and the delivery ultimately of the learning mm -hmm. programme itself. If you need that, it's to be called reinforcement type content you know, that needs to be done. Very good. Suchitra, next question, please. Sean from Seattle, USA asks, can you explain what the difference is between SCORM and XAPI? Okay, all right. I'm going to have a go at this one, and then I'll ask my learning colleagues to kind of knowledge uh, to nod or not as we kind of go. So, SCORM is a standard from some time ago. Okay, originally came out of uh, a group called the AICC. Um, SCORM stood for uh, Shareable Content Object Reference, something or other. I think, if I remember rightly, it's largely to do with interoperability for designing e-learning content, so it would plug and play onto different learning management systems. It's fairly limited what you could do in terms of passing information from SCORM content into a um, learning management system and the way in which it measured learning outcomes was fairly limited. XAPI, um, sometimes called Tin Can, um, has a much broader set of um, ways of talking to various systems, both the host learning management system and also a learning record store which uh, is generally used to um, uh, make a, a more permanent um, record of what the learner actually did to progress through the course. So to Martin's point earlier uh, about, you know, kind of having milestones through the learning so that you know when they were engaged and they were progressing, yeah. 
versus when they're not, right? So um, hopefully that's about about right. Martin, do you, you will you sign me off on that as a foundation level? I will. I will, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So we've been around long enough to, to know SCORM really well. And we, we went in can as well. We, we developed XAPI interface um, on our courses, spent quite a bit of money doing it. And guess how many we sold? Because in the end, most organizations use standard SCORM. It may not be right, it may not be wrong, but you have to go where the, the, the technology is. So for the moment, although we have it, everybody just wants SCORM. Understand, understand that. And I think we'll see a lot of catching up on that um, coming soon, and particularly when we start to look at uh, the metaverse and these kinds of technologies. So let's move on, um, Suchitra, please, from the world of standards to something else. Question from Rebecca, New Orleans, USA. I bought an online course recently, which just seems to be made up of videos that I have to watch, nothing else. Is this normal? <laughs> I'm afraid it is a fairly common experience, um, Melanie, and then Sabajit, but super briefly, please, because we're almost out of time. It might be normal, but don't settle for it. Um, as we've said, engagement, two-way, being able to apply what you've learned, great flow through the course, um, short video clips, it, it's, it's part of a much bigger picture. If you're only getting that, you're not getting the bigger picture. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Sabajit, in your experience? Well, unfortunately, most of the platforms do provide video only and they think they are doing the best thing. Uh, it's not, of course. So um, try to uh, enlist in somewhere that's instructor-led and which has got more activity. Now, th there is another thing that is bit-sized learning portals are there where you learn small bit-sized concepts one at a time and you may watch videos which are two minutes to maximum three minutes so that can reinstate and you can then bring it back and try that out at work and come and learn something a bit more i think that way you can make something out of it okay thank you very much well, i think we've got time Sachita, for one last question but panel we're going to have to be uh, pretty brief on this one question from susan in atlanta is it better to have small sections of content or longer sections with more breaks? Okay. Well, it's an interesting um, question. Martin? I'm, I'm, I'm a little biased because we call training bite size. And the reason we call training bite size is because we be deliver, but everything is done in bite size chunks. It's the future of, of delivery seems to be smaller and smaller, but it's how people want it. The, the new generation of learning um, as well coming through the learners that we're seeing prefer bite-sized chunks and smaller so we tend to design modules now smaller and smaller but effectively a question or hook into the next one and so on and so on but my view is definitely smaller good question susan okay, thank you it, it is indeed a, a really good question reflects the trend in learning um ron final thoughts on this yeah very quickly uh, i deliver in modules and each module has sessions to it so although it's maybe a two-hour module, it could have three or four sessions. So it's broken down into bite-sized chunks. And um, each of those, uh, the end of each of those sessions is, a, is like a Q&A for the previous session. And that's the way people like, like, like what I do. So, you know. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed. And it takes me right back to those original days of um, the AICC committee and its single 
objective, learning objective for one reusable content object. So there you go. That shows how old I am, about 103. Um, so look, uh, very interesting today. Thank you very much. A wide range of different questions from um, our audience. So thank you very much indeed. You've put a question in. Um, panel, I'll just come to you now for your closing remarks, um, if we can. Uh, Melanie first and then Martin. I think we're just at the start of this. Um, online learning has been around a long time. Um, but now we have a global audience who um, they've changed the way they work. They're into hybrid working um, and that genie's out of the bottle now. So I think we're into um, this this new world and I think we're only at the very beginning of it and we've got a lot more to learn yet. Thank you very much, Martin. And then Ron? I think it's a really exciting time. We've been doing... We've been developing online training for some time, but now it's different, it's exciting, it's vibrant, there's new technologies. The future is more interactive training, such as blended, um, online, virtual workshops. You're now able to add so much value across your organisation by using these tools. <coughs> Take the tips we've raised, make sure your courses hit the right spot in terms of content delivery, and uh, get out there and create the training. And, of course, we've got the emerging VR training rooms and metaverse, haven't we, Nick, which we need to think about for the Absolutely. future. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's no there's no reason at all why you have to go with the lowest common denominator that everybody else is doing. You know, you can make your learning stand out just by just by starting really thinking about it. Uh, Ron, go ahead. And then Sabajit. Yeah, the, the world has changed. Obviously, it's changed a lot. And um, we now we did before, but we now even have a wider global audience to deliver to. And, you know, the, the, the better we can deliver to that global audience, obviously it's going to be um, more uh, preferential to them. Um, so, you know, um, although, as I said earlier, I try and keep my delivery simple, yeah, there are certain things you still have to do to make sure that the delivery is good enough for the people that you're delivering to and they are happy with it. Thanks very much indeed. And Sabajit? Hi. Um, what I would want to say is, um, you know, we have not been moving a lot, even though in Singapore we had uh, online learning, um, you know, right after SARS outbreak in 2004 or somewhere around there. But this coronavirus, COVID-19 outbreak, things have been accelerated. And as Man says, out of the genie is out now. And just like digital transformation in corporates was also, uh, you know, triggered by this uh, virus, I think in education it's happening the same. And the um, important thing is experiential, experiential learning. People need to experience something. It, it Otherwise, learning is hap not happening. So technology has to be included in a big way. Absolutely right. Thank you. Um, Suchitra, we've had an exciting and quite interesting, you know, journey on this particular session. Your thoughts, please. Absolutely, Nick. It's been great to hear everybody's uh, thoughts. And I agree, online learning and e-learning is here to stay and there's a lot more to go. So it's been a great session and thank you to the panel. 
Okay, thank you very much indeed for handling all of the questions. Um, great job, great job, everybody on our panel today. Thank you very much. Now, if you're watching and you're getting value from our content, please do uh, like the video, subscribe to the YouTube channel and ring the little bell so that you're notified when we go live next Monday. Um, on the 6th of December, which is next week, um, at 8 a.m. Uh, GMT, we'll be exploring the role of the Agile Business Analyst as we take another look at project and program management. Later on in the same day, at 1 p.m. GMT, we'll leap into leadership, what makes a good leader, how to become one, and how to lead in an Agile environment. Subscribe to the show and we'll send you a personal summary of what's coming up and how you can join us here on the panel and level up your career with APMG. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you next time.